Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? Always a pleasure, and I'm so happy we don't have to do the show at like, you know, 4 a.m., 5 a.m., or whatever <laughs> time we've been doing them. So, you know, this it's always good to get together. I feel like we haven't talked in a while, even though yeah, even we though have. It well, it's, it's part of the reason is because we've been doing like a lot of the, the interview, quote unquote, interview episodes recently. And this last week we didn't, uh, you know, I, I spoke with Miguel Iterati, the former uh, matchmaker for Bodog Fight. And so, yeah, it was you weren't on for that one. But uh, I got a feeling you're probably going to be on for the next one. So we'll 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 see what happens. But <laughs> it's always good. To, always good to reconnect with you as we're recording this. It is all out weekend for AEW, the return return of CM Punk, which uh, Josh, you're a, a huge fan of CM Punk. So um, it's got got a kind of a special buzz to the weekend. Um, so nothing to do at all with what we're talking about tonight. But hey, uh, well, but, I, CM Punk is a former MMA fighter. There you go. He's got he's he's got one loss. And won no contest. And won no know? contest, right. So and he Clear, started and, and he clearly would have won that fight if the other guy hadn't been high, you know? So clearly that, that was the difference a- right there. Absolutely. And and you know, if if he had started when he was seventeen, not thirty seven, yeah. Like Herschel Walker. Like who Herschel knows? Walker. Good who little, knows how great. Good little segue there. So yeah. All right. Well, uh, I want to welcome our listeners to the show. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And both Josh and I worked for the, for the promotion at various times. So kind of a, a subject near and dear to our hearts on the episode that we are currently recording. We're going to be discussing Strike Force Diaz versus Cyborg, which took place on January 29, 2011 in my hometown of San Jose, California. The main event featured Nick Diaz defending his welterweight title against Evangelista Cyborg Santos. In the co-main event, Jacare Souza put his middleweight title on the line against ruthless Robbie Lawler. And we also saw the final MMA fight of the aforementioned Herschel Walker, as well as the returns to strikes, strike force for both Hodger Gracie and Trevor Prangley. Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows in the network at evergreenpodcast.com. Uh, we are in process of porting over all of our information over to the Evergreen Podcast Network. And in fact, we got a brand new website up. You can check it out at insidethehexagon.com. But the fallout from our previous event episode, Strike Force Henderson versus Babalu 2, we were coming off possibly the most exciting Strike Force event in the promotion's history up to that point as Henderson versus Babalu 2 featured four main card knockouts, and all of them were pretty brutal. In particular, Robbie Lawler turning out Matt Lindland's lights was an all-time highlight, as was Paul Daly's face-planting left hand on the face of Scott Smith, much much to the chagrin of Josh, as Mr. Smith was one of his favorite fighters. We also saw Dan Henderson knock out Babalu Sobral. Hendo and Lawler both earned title shots in their respective weight classes as a result. So a really, really fun card to watch. It didn't have a, any classic battles on it. All the, all four fights ended fairly quickly, uh, but this it was definitely a very memorable card and, and, again, worth the watch. So let's talk about some of the fight announcements and what was kind of going on leading up to Diaz versus Cyborg. Originally, Nick Diaz was supposed to face Jason Mayhem Miller in a grudge match in the main event of this card. However, according to MMA Weekly, they couldn't come to an agreement on what weight to contest the fight at. Nick Diaz normally fought at 170 at this point, while Mayhem was at 185 pounds. Although they both went back and forth, I believe. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, they both had fights at the other. I know for a fact that Diaz had fights at 185, and I believe Mayhem f- had fights 
at 170. But as a reminder, these two had begun feuding when Mayhem interrupted Jake Shields' post-fight interview at the Nashville event in April of 2010, setting off a melee that included the Diaz brothers and Gilbert Melendez jumping on Mayhem, and the feud just continued to build from there. And Strike Force promoter Scott Coker was interviewed around this time, stating that he really hoped to be able to put together a Nick Diaz versus Mayhem Miller fight in the future. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, but seemingly unfortunately, it would never happen. So instead, Diaz would put on the, the title on the line against Cyborg Santos, the then husband of Chris Cyborg, who was the Strike Force women's bantam, uh, sorry, women's featherweight champion at that time. So this would look to be a crowd pleasing fight, but not exactly on the level of Diaz, Diaz versus Mayhem. But I will tell you, and without a spoiler that it was a very, very entertaining main event. All right, a few weeks before Diaz versus Cyborg, Strikeforce ran a Challengers event at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium, just about 25 minutes from where I currently sit. Took place on January 7, 2011. There were some very notable names on this card, and it drew 2,631 fans to the venue in action were Dustin Ortiz, recent Bellator title challenger, and I say recent meaning today, uh, uh, Bellator title challenger John Salter and then Ovince St. Pro was back and for OSP this was his third Strike Force event in a row he fought on three straight Strike Force events all of these fights taking place in less than seven weeks so he set two Strike Force records there in that he was the only Strike Force fighter to fight on three straight Strike Force events and he was the only one to complete three Strike Force events in under seven weeks so pretty amazing there uh, and he won all three fights. And this win here gave OSP eight wins in a row, which set him up for a big-time fight with Gegard Musassi. Another notable name made her strike force debut on this card as the GOAT, the women's GOAT, Amanda Nunez, knocked out Julia Budd in just 14 seconds. She was now on a six-fight win streak. She was expected to fight on a big strike force event soon after this, but sustained a foot injury. But she would be back later in the year. It's crazy to think that Amanda Nunez was in Strike Force, and it's just a reminder that Strike Force, Scott Coker, just visionaries in promoting women's MMA at a time when, as you've talked about, they were a distant second in the fight against the UFC, and the UFC was just flat out discriminatory. Well, maybe not discriminatory, but just flat out saying, we're not going to do women's MMA, and Strike Force made money off it they introduced the sport to obviously ronda rousey and misha tate and these others and and well now women's mma is still big so just that's one of strike force's big legacies and we see it here it, it might actually be their biggest legacy i mean you look at some of the fighters that made their bones in in strike force from the male side you know daniel cormier tyron woodley luke rockhold i mean there's a you know obviously a bunch of guys Jacare Souza, I, I just a ton. I mean, and Nick Diaz had a name before he came here, but really established himself as one of the elite, you know, welterweights in the world with Strike Force. And you know, it, it, it's it, you can't deny that. But on the, I mean, they're so important to women's MMA. To your point, Josh. I mean, just so important to women's MMA. Dana White had made a point of saying he was not going to do women's MMA. Would never do it. And he saw these these female fighters and how talented they were. And obviously, I'm sure from the bottom line perspective, that have, that affected the reversal of his feelings and his standing on the subject. And, you know, so, I mean, would can we say that we wouldn't have Amanda Nunez? We wouldn't have, you know, these these women, these female fighters that we have today and, and you know, as established as, as it is today without strike force. We don't know for sure, because, you know, maybe Dana would have reversed course anyways. Maybe Bellator would have picked it up and 
you know, run with it. And Dana would have, you know, then taken, I mean, we, we don't know, but there's just no doubt that women's MMA owes a debt of gratitude to Scott Coker and strike force for giving them the mainstream MMA, at least mainstream uh, platform that they got, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, nobody could have seen how huge Ronda Rousey would become just cause she was pinning or submitting girls in seconds. So strike force got a bit of a break there, but still they, they valued that, Hey, women can compete on a level that men can in terms of, um, you know, being a draw and, uh, they took a chance. They took a risk. It's just too bad, Phil, that strike force never promoted tag team MMA <laughs> because that I would love to see in the UFC. And if you ever watched that, like there's a couple of like YouTube indie things where they tried to do that. And obviously it's, you know, there's so many problems that can happen with something like that. But can you imagine? I mean, one time. I, dude, I kind of love the idea of a guy <laughs> being like in a rear naked choke and he's reaching out to make the tag. Yeah. And, you know, the guy, the guy on the outside has got to hold the tag rope and he's reaching out as far as he can. And their fingers are just too far away. And then the, uh, the guy with the, that's got the choke on just, you know, wraps the body triangle triangle and rolls away. <laughs> and that, and then guys forced to, I mean, that's dude, that's good drama right there. So that would, that would actually be pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I, I see how it's hokey and it's too pro wrestling, but yeah. I'd also like to see it tried once, just once and see what would happen. You know, it, it, I mean, you never know until you see it on a, on a big stage, you know, but you know, what, what if, what if you had a Amanda Nunez and John Jones, right. Taking on, you know, um, Daniel Cormier and Ronda Rousey, you know, mixed tag. Like, <laughs> oh, and now we're going intergender <laughs> mixed tag MMA. Jeez. <laughs> it's 2021. Yeah. I don't think we're going to yeah. see that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, speaking of Daniel Cormier, he was also competing on this card. He wanted a decision against Devin Cole, which brought his record to 7-0 and and set him up for a big card event soon. And then in the main event, the aforementioned Tyron Woodley ran his record to 8-0 after a decision went over fellow future Strike Force welterweight champion Tarek Safadine. I wouldn't have minded being at that card. I mean, that, that sounds like a really, really good card. So, uh, you know, obviously those names were not as big back then as they are now. But, I mean, you know, a card with – uh, with, with Tarek Safadine and Tyron Woodley and Daniel Cormier and Amanda Nunez. And I mean, that's, you know, Ovin St. Pro. I mean, this is, that's a really solid lineup. So uh, that if you put that card together today, you know, that'd be a legit UFC card for sure. So pretty amazing. All right. Well, this brings us to strike force Diaz versus cyborg. It again, took place on Saturday, January 29th, 2011 at the HP pavilion in, the, in San Jose, California commentating once again, would be Mara Ronaldo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich. Again, don't know what was going on with Gus Johnson, according to Wikipedia, which, as we all know, is always right. Um, they did cite an article where it said that Militich was standing in for Gus Johnson on this one, but we'd seen Militich on several cards in a row as far as the main ones go, so not sure what was going on there. Uh, but again, Jimmy Lennon Jr. would be handling the ring announcing. The event drew 9,059 fans, of which 8,817 were paid. And the Showtime broadcast drew 561,000 viewers on average with a peak of 850,000 viewers. That's like an episode of AEW Dynamite. That, well, not, kind of not, since, not since Punk came, because oh. now they're, they're, their Dynamite ratings are up over a million. But yes, I, it's... This is uh, more like a rampage rating, but, um, but yeah. 
Yeah, I would say, though, um, I'm so glad that Pat Mil- Militech is, was was there. He's so much better than Gus Johnson. And yeah. He said it, he, it just so many times, and we can't point everyone out, but so many times watching the fights tonight, you know, or this show, he would say something and then it would happen. And yeah. that's just so cool to see. He's so cerebral as an, as an analyst. And I, I really thought that him and Frank would be a bad match because they're both former, you know, former world champion fighters. So it's like, why do we need both of them as, you know, essentially providing that color commentary, but they just really played really well off, off each other. And then you could, you know, Frank talked about it in one of our interviews that him and Pat were supposed to fight at one point And it actually got a little bit awkward between them and, um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and there was a, a comment at the end of the the fight here tonight where uh, I don't want to spoil it, but basically the, uh, you know, the, the, um, there were some family members for one of the losing, uh, you know, one of the losing fighters there in the audience that was very emotional. And Frank talked about having his pregnant wife at, at ringside for one of his fights. And Pat says, well, that just tells you what kind of, what kind of guy you are, Frank. And Frank just like burst out laughing and, you know, like just like a little tiny little dig like that, you know? And it's like that I, I, I dug it, you know, like, and Frank, you know, took it in stride and, and, and basically gave Pat that spotlight moment, you know, of like, all right, you got me, you know? And so I, I, there's just kind of this underlying simmering, you know, they were very different fighters. And and so it was also, you know, it was cool to kind of hear those differing perspectives. And I just, I feel like they just gelled and it worked really well. You know, as you know, Josh, well, both of us, neither of us were big fighters of, of Gus Johnson. And that was a pretty, uh, I don't think anybody in MMA was, <laughs> was a big fan of Gus Johnson's. Um, but I, you know, so even more so, I really liked having Pat out there too. And I think it worked. I think that, that threesome in the, in the booth worked really, really well. Yeah. And I just want to say, you know, you, you tell the story about, you know, Frank and his wife. That's why Phil, I swear, if I ever go on a game show, if I ever have to do anything in front of a lot of people where I could be embarrassed, I'm not telling my kids. I'm not telling my wife. I'm not telling anybody because I don't want them to be embarrassed. Like I never understand like why these these fighters bring their kids, you know, to watch oh, yeah. them get their 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 like beat. Like it's traumatic. Like what what like six year old wants to see their mom or dad just pummeled, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, in the what you mentioned, that person can handle it because they're also a fighter, but. I just, I think leave them at home and let them break well, the news when you get home. <laughs> and you know, do you, you remember what the worst uh, example of what we're talking about is? Do you remember, like, do you, do you know what I'm, what I'm hinting at? Um, probably, but I'm, I don't know exactly, but I'll probably Do you remember, remember uh, you remember Mick Foley against the Rock oh, yeah. in, yeah. Uh, in what was it, Wrestling with Shadows, I think it was? Beyond and the Mat. Or was Beyond, Beyond the, the Mat, mat. there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah, Wrestling with Shadows was Bret, Bret Hart's book. Yeah, Beyond the Mat. Uh, and, and for listeners that don't remember, that's an excellent wrestling documentary movie. If you ever, if you've never watched, I think when it came out in 98, I know it's been on Netflix. I don't know if it still is, but excellent, excellent behind the scenes look at, at the WWF in the late nineties, but Mick Foley and, and the rock were in a a very, very memorable feud. And it was, I want to say it was in Anaheim and they did an I quit match at the Royal rumble and they were supposed to mankind knew that he was going to take some chair shots to the head. Um, for, and this is, of course, pre-CTE and all that stuff. And The Rock, they apparently had agreed on like a certain number, and it was a much lower number than it ended up being. I want to say he ended up taking 13 
not just chair shots to the head, but his hands were handcuffed behind his back and he got cut open and it was bleeding like a stuck pig, you know, obviously had to be concussed and his and Foley's young kids, two young children at that time were in the audience with their mom and like the, the cameras from beyond the mat caught him and eventually his wife took the kids to the back and they were crying. And I mean, it was just bad. And they show them, especially his daughter, Noel coming in and him getting stitched up. And she's like, dad, you know, he's like, daddy's okay. Daddy's okay. And, and then there was this big thing because the rock didn't come back and check on him afterwards. So they actually had some heat for a while there, but that's, you know, the most well-known worst example uh, of that in MMA. Probably the closest I can think of with that is Mark Coleman, lost twice to Fedor and the second time they were in Vegas and Coleman had his daughters. I don't know if they were actually cage side or what, but he brought his daughters into the ring and they're both like bawling their eyes out. Cause daddy looked bad. Like, like Fedor put a whooping on him and he picks up his girls and, and Fedor's over there, you know, for Fedor smiling <laughs> and, uh-huh. you know, and the, the daughters are, you know, they, they're scared of him and Coleman's, you know, no, it's okay. He's, he's okay. And, um, daddy's okay. And, and he's a nice man. And you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> they're probably traumatized and scared of Russians for the rest of their lives. <laughs> so As they yeah, should I, be. <laughs> I, yeah, 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 exactly. Go America. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I, I hear you, man. Like I'm kind of like, I, I'm, I'm in your camp. I, I don't know that I would want the pressure on my side of having my family there. I remember Joe Riggs, we interviewed him on here and he talked about beating Eugene Jackson up in front of his boys at ringside and that it actually messed with him a little bit that he was like, I, I, you know, I don't want to do this in front of his sons. And so from both an opponent's perspective, of course, actually then maybe it works for me. Then if I, if I'm the underdog and I bring my kids, maybe the the other guy will feel bad for me and not, (laughs) not, not try as hard, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you, man. Just kind of, I mean, as, as much as a fan of the Rocky movies as I am, uh, I just don't think it's a good idea to have, you know, have spouses and kids at ringside when you're, especially in a legit, you know, fight situation. So. Yeah, and, and I got to say, by the way, Rock, Dwayne Johnson does not get enough blame for doing that. I, I know he's untouchable, super popular, but my goodness, like he totally broke the rules there. Oh like, yeah, you know. Oh yeah, you you guys agree on a? I mean, especially knowing that your your guy's going to be handcuffed, and you agree on a certain amount of chair shots, you don't go over the, that amount of chair shots. And in fact, you're making sure the guy's okay. You know, before, but I mean, he was just, I don't know what happened. He should have gotten way more, you know, heat on him and gotten way more in trouble. But obviously, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't super, super, superstar status that he would get to yet. But, uh, you know, still that, that was, it was egregious. That's why I'm team Cena for life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you can't see me. All right. One last little quick note, and then we'll get into the card. But this would be the last Strike Force uh, event to feature amateurs on the undercard. I'm say the last Strike Force card. Correct. Yeah, to feature amateurs on the undercard. Only pros going forward. But let's jump into the undercard. There are a bunch of fights on here. 150 pounds. Anthony Dariano defeated Alan Perez via unanimous decision. At 165 pounds, Ricky Jackson defeated his brother from another mother, Nico Jackson, via unanimous decision. I'm assuming that they weren't related. Uh, 170 pounds, Armin Safiari defeated Sam Bracamonte via unanimous decision. 180 pounds, Ron Kessler defeated Eric Lawson by submission, come by way of triangle armbar at 157 of the first round. At 155 pounds, Isaiah Hill defeated Bobby Stack via submission, come by way of triangle choke at 102 of the first round. 
At 125 pounds, women's fight, Jenna Castillo defeated Charlene Gellner via, via KO, coming by way of knees at 357 of the second round. And then 170 pounds, Nate Moore defeated Nathan Coy by T, uh, come by way, I'm sorry, via TKO, come by way of strikes at 25 seconds of the second round. At 135 pounds, Jermaine DeRandami, ah, Randami, Randami. Yeah, I always have trouble with her last name. She's a current UFC fighter. Uh, she defeated Stephanie Weber by KO, come by way of knees at 425 of the first round. And then finally, 170 pounds, James Terry defeated Lucas Gamaza via TKO, come by way of strikes at 326 of the first round. You know, a super long undercard. You wonder yeah. why they yeah. couldn't have put one of these on the main show. I was doing a little bit of research, and the Wrestling Observer notes that it was a purposely short show. Showtime only wanted four fights live because they had two title matches that had the possibility of going five rounds. And their philosophy, which obviously differs from the UFC, is to not air prelim fights. Because of that, Strike Force's philosophy is generally not to put any name fighters in prelims, concentrating on local talent that may help sell tickets. So interesting sort of insight there on why we have this massive undercard and a very short main show. Yeah, I mean, if you notice, if you look at their challengers cards, you would see named guys. You would see Daniel Cormier, Tyron Woodley, Luke Rockhold. You would see guys that were names on the rise at the very least. So why not put them on the undercard of the main bouts? But yeah, the philosophy was let's use them on the challengers cards to help, you know, sell those tickets. And then, you know, as far as the undercard of the main tentpole events, so to speak, yeah, you, 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 use local guys that are actually not only just going to help sell tickets from a drawing perspective, but they literally sell tickets. Like they, they will put tickets in the local fight gyms and sell them there. And then they get to keep a, a, a chunk of it. And then the, uh, you know, obviously the rest goes to strike force, but yeah, this was especially, man, what a racket that was with amateur fighters, you know, cause they couldn't get paid anyways. So interesting stuff, but yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. But this brings us to the main card. Four fights to go over at 205 pounds. Hodger Gracie defeated Trevor Prangley via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 419 of the first round. Prangley was 23-6-1 with four KOs and nine submissions coming in. The South African Hammer had gotten the nod in six of his last eight bouts, losing to Tim Kennedy by submission in his most recent strike force bout. However, he'd won a closely contested split decision fight with Keith Jardine the previous September and was looking to build on top of that. Just before we get going here, I don't know if you noticed it, but um, he was introduced as Trevor Prangley, the accomplished and experienced. And I just thought, you know, I'd rather you just say Trevor Prangley if that was me yeah. than to force. Or what, or what happened to the, the, the South African hammer? I mean, God, that's like heads and shoulders above uh, the accomplished and experienced Trevor Prangley. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's terrible. I, oh, I did not my. notice that, though. Yeah, it's Jimmy Lennon Jr. Come on, was, Jimmy. Jeez. He can make pretty much anything sound good, but I not, saw through that BS. That was not the good. accomplished and experienced. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awful. Can you imagine Bruce Buffer today, you know, <laughs> fighting out of the blue corner. The accomplished and experienced. Yeah, that's terrible. All right. Yeah, all right. Well, on the other side, Hodger Gracie was 3-0 and with three submissions, a multi-time BJJ World champion Gracie had beaten Ron Waterman, Yuki Kondo, and Kevin Randleman thus far in his career. That's that's quite a line of fighters to start off your career with. The last of those, the fight with Randleman, had come in Strike Force. 
Uh, this would be a very stiff test for him, uh, as obviously Prangley, as we just learned, was very accomplished and experienced. So this would be uh, quite a test for Gracie, but he'd shown he had the skills to hang with some really quality, talented fighters, so we'd see what would happen here. Uh, both Prangley and Gracie had fought Yuki Kondo. They had one one opponent in experience. Uh, I'm sorry, one opponent in common. Gracie had submitted him, and Prangley had knocked him out. So Kondo did not like fighting either of these guys. Uh, the six four Gracie uses reach early on with some really nice jabs. A couple minutes in, the Brazilian shot in and secured the takedown. Pr- Prangley tried to fight the positioning, but Gracie's ground game. I mean, God, he's a Gracie, so as you would expect, was just too much. He advanced to full mount, and the South African tried to use the cage with his feet to get out of it, and turning his back. Uh, and in doing so, it would prove to be his undoing. Gracie immediately saw the opportunity and latched onto the neck, securing a rear naked choke and eliciting the tap while he had the body triangle on. And nice win for Hodger Gracie. He celebrated with Gracie family members such as Caesar and Half after the bout. I thought I saw Henzo in there, and it's possible he was there, but then um, I, I, I couldn't say that it was him for sure. And then I saw Half afterwards, which I had to look up Half. I recognized him. He fought in pride at least once. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Half. And I actually had, it took me like five or 10 minutes to find out which, which Gracie it was. But uh, uh, a nice win for, for Hodger. Yeah. Frank Shamrock noted that uh, Gracie had sort of a boxer stance. He had yeah, his like, yeah, shoulder he out. Kind of, kind of lauded his, his stand up skills. And I thought he did look good on his feet. Yeah. So that was definitely notable. And I, I think Prangley, quite honestly, just fought a lazy fight. I, I don't think he really knew what to do or. He's had a game plan going in there. He was head hunting. He was throwing punches at the head, but he, you know, he was throwing up. He couldn't really reach. And I just think when you got like a mass of flesh that Gracie is, you know, you got to go for the body. You got to slug him in the stomach. You got to sort of do some Muay Thai. You got to knee him. You got to do something to sort of bring the level of his head down. So I just think Prangley was reaching and, uh, he wasn't doing enough on the lower half of the body. And I mean, Gracie is just so he's, he's almost too big to be a good MMA fighter, uh, because he's so like kind of clunky in there, but this was one of the few fights where he put it all together and was able to beat a very accomplished and experienced South African fighter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Hey, you start off your career with wins over, you know, Ron Waterman, former UFC and pride heavyweight fighter, very talented guy. Uh, you know, Yuki Kondo, very, very accomplished and experienced in his own right. And then, uh, you know, Kevin Randleman, former UFC heavyweight champion, who was, you know, obviously past his prime at that point. But I mean that and then you add Trevor Prangley, you know, that's a really, really solid. I mean, you could retire right there and be like, man, successful MMA career. I believe he ended up leaving the sport at either eight and two or eight and three. So, he, I mean, Gracie did end up, you know, he did end up uh, having a pretty respectable career. And, uh, you know, again, hats off to him. But you don't have to worry about uh, Trevor Prangley not having good game plans anymore because this would be it for him in Strike Force. Uh, he continued to fight until 2015, left the sport with a respectable record of 35-11-1. Uh, we do have an interview with Prangley in the archives. It's a, it's a good chat with him. He's uh, running, I believe, an AKA affiliate out in Idaho, if I remember correctly, and doing quite well. So, you know, that's uh, definitely worth checking out. And Gracie. He would be back in strike force later on in the year to take on King Mo. All right. Next bout at 265 pounds, heavyweight bout. Herschel Walker defeated Scott Carson VTKO, come by way of strikes at 313 of the first round. Rock Walker, of course, was 1-0 with a TKO win over Greg Nudge almost exactly a year before this bout. It was, it was 364 days before 
which is interesting. Uh, but at 48 years old and a novice in MMA, he knew that his time was short, and so he had to make the most of it. And so he'd be taking on Carson, who was 4-1. and one. All of his wins were coming by way of submission. His most decent fight ended in a loss. I'm sorry, not decent. <laughs> his most recent fight uh, at this point ended had ended in a loss to Lorenz Larkin. You know, in the promo before this, when they were doing the video packages, they talked to Herschel Walker and he said, you know, if I want to be an MMA fighter, I want to be a great MMA fighter. And I thought that was really telling because it made sense in terms of how well he trained and how well he prepared. And I just wonder why he stopped. Now, I know he's 48, but if you have that mentality, most fighters go until they lose. Right, like even Floyd Mayweather, he's retired, but he's still fighting. He's gonna keep fighting until someone knocks him out. You know, so I just think it's interesting that he had everything going for him, and he was so old, and he could lose, and nobody would care. They'd just be like, "Dang, he's Herschel Walker, and he lost at forty-eight or forty-nine or 50. So I just think I would love to know why he why he stopped after this fight. Yeah, and at, I mean to your point at the you know in the post fight interview he made no sound of you know why he stepped or he made no uh, hint that he was gonna walk away, um, you know he, he said he was gonna keep going and uh, you know that and that was it but but for whatever reason he you know apparently I don't know I don't know what happened but he decided not to come back and. Uh, that ended up be it, being it, but I did. Okay. Actually, no, I've got an interview right here. I was Googling it while we were chatting. Yeah. Uh, Herschel Walker explains why he stopped fighting. This was a 2017 interview. He said, I couldn't get a fight. That's why he, he quit. He was, uh, he was two and oh, enjoying life, but he still wanted more. The reason I stopped fighting, I couldn't get a fight. I wanted to step up in talent. Most of the time I'm doing this for fun because I love to do it, giving all my money to churches. Other guys are doing it for their career, so it's kind of hard to fight Herschel Walker when there's a very good chance you may lose, and he's doing it for fun, and they're doing it for career, so that's kind of tough. So he doesn't really miss miss it because he's in the gym all the time anyways. He says, I'm still at AKA all the time. This is four years ago, so I'm still training all the time. Um, so, yeah, it, it just seems like he couldn't get a fight, and then uh, – you know, yeah, just couldn't get a fight, and so that was it. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I'd have to. I don't know if I believe that. I feel like a lot of guys would want to fight Herschel Walker. Yeah, this. yeah. I, I don't know why. Who wouldn't want to fight Herschel Walker? Because yeah. you know, yeah, he's very inexperienced, but obviously a big name. I, I would think that you would want to. So, and, yeah, and as we'll talk about, I mean, he did. He did look beatable, at least you know, in part of this fight. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well. um, yeah, I'm just I'm just kind of reading a little bit more, and I'm sorry, listeners, that I'm I'm kind of taking. Uh, I want it to be yeah. So he was even back in 2016, he was still talking about fighting. Said he'd be, he'd be willing to fight Rampage Jackson. I want it to be a worthy opponent. I don't want it to be someone they handpicked, some bum that they found on the street that was fighting 15 years ago. I want I don't want it to be someone like that. I want to keep I want it to be someone that will keep the integrity of this sport. So, you know, it, it is what it is, and 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 that was it for him, or this would be it for him. But let's talk about the fight itself. Uh, I got to say, I know you're not a big fan of, of Walker as a fighter, but he looked a little looser than his first fight, but he did still look pretty stiff. Uh, Carson unleashed a high kick early on, which grazed the football great, who screamed and then proceeded to drop his opponent with strikes. It was actually kind of cool. Uh, Carson recovered while Walker took top position. 
Walker would try to hurt Carson with strikes while the more experienced Carson would look for submission opportunities. Eventually Walker was standing with Carson on his back. When Carson went to get up, Walker hit him with a left hand, dropping him again. And the ref had seen enough and stopped the fight. I didn't really love the fight. Didn't really love the stoppage. Uh, it seemed a little bit early, but Carson, who was being overwhelmed, just didn't, you know, he didn't really protest it. So I, I think a, a good win for a guy that was one and at the time. Yeah. I didn't like the stoppage either. I felt it was a little bit quick. Um, I guess he maybe he got caught in a way that the camera didn't catch hard to know. Um, I didn't like the fight too much. I felt it was a sloppy fight. Uh, I think once Walker got hit, as you noted, he screamed. He's like, yeah, kind of like, let's get it on. You lit me up. I'm awake now. Let's do this. And then he just kind of threw this, like, wild hand, and he hit Carson hard, and he dropped him, and it was sort of over. So I, I think, you know, he definitely hit him, but I can't say that he, you know, set him up with a jab and then landed yeah. and dropped him. It was just like Carson got excited. He put his hands down, and he got popped, and then the next thing you know, he's on the ground. What I will say about Herschel Walker is just you could see his intensity, his athleticism, his commitment, his durability. I mean, once he got uh, Carson down, he just would not let him up. And that just shows that he's a high-level athlete. Uh, he knew he had the stamina. And uh, he was not going to lose this fight after tasting a little bit of the uh, punch and feeling, knowing what that feels like. You know, he Carson, having said that, had opportunities to submit him. He, he almost had a, a key lock, a leg lock. Walker slipped out. Um, but, you know, as you said, Walker just tagged him and it was stopped. So give it to Herschel Walker for just being so resilient and, and, and not giving up and not, not letting Carson up. But three times he could have lost this fight. Yeah. Well, I mean, Walker's so strong and athletic. I think he'd be pretty difficult for anybody to submit. And obviously, Carson being 4-0 with four submissions, he was a good submission fighter. Or, sorry, 4-1 four, um, four uh, with all of his wins come by way of submission. You know, obviously a good submission fighter. But, uh, you know, regardless, this would be it for both Walker and Carson in both strike force and MMA overall. As we've said, you know, you got to give a lot of respect to Walker for making his mark. And, you know, at his age going on and, and fighting in an elite promotion, going undefeated at 2-0, uh, you know, just one of the greatest American athletes in history. I don't think anybody can question that. Yeah, and for what it was, this was great booking by Scott Coker. He put him in there with two people that Walker could beat, and Walker looked good. And it was a nice little something else for Herschel to add to his resume. Like, I'm also an undefeated MMA fighter. Uh, Dana White would have wrecked him, right? Dana White would have had him in there with Brock Lesnar in the second <laughs> fight to pop a big pay-per-view rating, you know? Yeah. So... So I think this was a this is a good story of MMA. I just wish we would have seen him against a guy like Lashley or just seen him fight a couple more times because it's like, wow, the 48-year-old Herschel Walker, all-American athlete, MMA fighter, keep going. Don't stop. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's all. You know. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen one, more, one or two more from him for sure and against a, a you know, a, a name opponent or maybe a guy that was kind of, you know, like a CM Punk type guy, you know, another guy that's from another sport that's, putting his toe in the water, uh, you know, while it kind of might've been a circus fight. I mean, that would have been a huge seller and neither guy would have come out, you know, hurting from a brand perspective, basically. So, all right. Co-main event time, 185 pounds. Jacare Souza defeated ruthless Robbie Lawler via submission come by way of rear naked choke at two minutes of the third round to retain the strike force middleweight championship. 
Souza was 13 and two with 10 submissions. He had won the then vacant Strikeforce middleweight title in a battle with Tim Kennedy on August 21st at Strikeforce Houston. Uh, so this would be his first defense. He'd brought his winning streak to three with that win. And the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo black belt had previously defeated Joey Zavia-Senor and Matt Lindland to earn his chance at the Strikeforce gold that he had then captured. And then, as mentioned previously, Lawler, 18-6 and six, with 15 knockouts and one submission coming in, was coming off an absolutely brutal first-round knockout of Matt Lindland on December 4th at Strikeforce Henderson versus Bob Liu. He had alternated wins and losses in his last five fights. He had also defeated the likes of Melvin Manhof and Scott Smith while losing to Hinato Babalu Sobral and former Strikeforce middleweight champion Jake, Jake Shields. They did actually have three opponents in common. Both fighters had beaten Joey Villasenor and Matt Lindland, while Jacare had beaten Mayhem Miller, who had defeated Lawler. Uh, the champ got a takedown pretty early on, and it was just all over Lawler, smothering him like a blanket. However, the challenger was able to get back up and went after Jacare with strikes, nailing and dropping him. It was clear the Brazilian was hurt, and he was in trouble. I mean, his, his legs were, were shaky at best. The commentators pointed out that Lawler made a mistake by following Jacare to the mat, which allowed him to tie up and recover. Big John stood up the fighters, which seemed to benefit Lawler. He went after Jacare again, who survived until the bell 10-9 Lawler, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it was a close round, um, kind of half and half, I guess because Lawler really hurt Jacare, I guess, you know, visually give it to him, but, you know, Jacare did really control it on the ground. Very close round. Um, I do want to note here, uh, I kind of want your opinion on this. Mauro mentioned that Jacare had been training with some great strikers, such as Junior Dos Santos and Anderson Silva. And as somebody who obviously grew up as a you know WWE fan, I did watch the Superstation. Of course, um, I was able to find the Ric Flair channel. But as somebody who grew up watching WWE and they like never ever acknowledged the competition, what do you think here? Um, Strikeforce did this a lot. You know, they mentioned a lot of the UFC big name fighters, and I think they sort of did it just to remind fans like, hey, these are. These are all MMA fighters here, and they all train together. They may just fight for different companies. But I also feel like it also really promotes the other brand in a way that they don't really need to be promoted. What do you think when you hear Strikeforce mentioning UFC names so frequently? Yeah, I, I so I get what you're saying. I disagree. Um, I think it's I think it's a good thing because it make it legitimizes your guys and makes them sound like credible fighters because they train with these other guys that are obviously credible fighters at the same time that I, and I noticed something that Morrow said during this, uh, during this, he said that uh, Javier Mendez, the AKA uh, head coach had said that if Herschel Walker had started an MMA as a young man, that he would have been a world champion. And he backed that up by saying, he said that Cain Velasquez would be a world champion. And now he is. And he didn't say that Cain Velasquez was the UFC heavyweight champion. So they're not really mentioning UFC. They're not saying, Yo, UFC middleweight champion Anderson Silva. They just said Anderson Silva. So it's different. I think if you're branding them, you know, if you're mentioning the promotion, that's one thing. And I could see that. Yeah. But on the flip side, the way I would agree with you is that when you're mentioning those names, if you're doing it to build your guys' credibility, you're already acknowledging that the UFC is what gives your, your guys' credibility, which isn't, yeah. you know, which isn't a good look for your brand. So, I, I still think it's worth it. I still think it's a good thing if you're as long as you're not attaching the UFC name to those other guys. I think it's okay. 
Yeah, the, I mean, good points all around. I, I think, I think you're right. You know, it just, it, you know, it just always kind of feels weird. But you're right; they don't actually say UFC. They might say George St. Pierre. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's let's move forward with the fight. When I say the second round was all Jacare, I mean it. I mean <laughs> he uh, he got a, a takedown early on. It was pretty much stayed there the entire round. He was improving position, going for submissions. Almost got an armbar with about a minute left. But to Lawler's credit, he was able to escape, and he escaped another armbar attempt and got top position with under 30 seconds left, but wasn't able to do anything with it. Clearly a 10-9 round, maybe, maybe a 10-8 round for the champ, but probably more 10-9. But then it was more of the same in the third round with Lawler, as as, as has often been the case in his career, being unable to compete consistently on the mat. Jacare got things down to the floor again and was able to secure both the body triangle just like Hodge Gracie had uh, in the uh, the opening bout and the, the rear naked choke, just like Gracie garnered a meek tap from Lawler. The champ had defended his title for the first time. Big win for Jacare. I have to ask you, Phil, is there a worse fighter who's, or let me, let me think of this, how to say this. Is there a fighter who's so good in the standup, but absolutely horrid on the ground more so than Robbie Lawler? I mean, Paul Daly comes to mind. Yeah. Like, like if you get Paul Daly down, you're going to win the fight probably. Robbie's gotten a lot better, obviously, you know, in his, his second UFC run. But, geez, I mean, once Robbie Lawler was down, he's like, there's no chance. You know, there's no way to win this fight. But um, I don't know. Do you, do you agree with me or is that, yeah, is that an overstatement? So I, I think I think his issue, because I think there are worse fighters on, I mean, obviously there are worse fighters on the ground. But as far as, like, the elite guys – He's, I mean, there were guys that had, I'm totally like Semtex is a good example for sure. Daly's a good example. Uh, Scott Smith would be another example of a guy. If you got him down on his back, you know, he was going to lose. Like it was just pretty much a given Lawler got out of a few submission attempts here. Like he, he could get out to me. His bigger issue was the mental side. And a perfect example of that is that, that him having Jacare rocked in the first round, I mean, it was clear Jacare was 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 really rocked. I mean, he was on fish legs, and Lawler just inexplicably goes to the mat with a black belt in jiu-jitsu in Brazilian <laughs> with in jiu-jitsu and and judo. Like, dude, really? I mean, you just rocked this guy. All you got to do is stand back and say, "Get up," and John, Big John will stand him up. Dude, he would have been a like not even a moving target. He would have just been a target. Like he was that badly hurt. It looked like it wasn't enough for John McCarthy to stop the fight, but it looked like when you've watched as many fights as you and I have, you can tell when like a guy is on his way out or is in danger of being stopped. Jacare was definitely on his way there. Now he recovered quickly and who knows what would have happened, but Lawler absolutely had a chance to be the first guy to win strike force and UFC gold. And, and, and he blew it because of the mental aspect of it. So I don't think it's so much that he was so awful on the ground because he was strong and he could get out of stuff and he did get out of stuff, but from a mental perspective, he would make really bad decisions. And, and that's why his record, I believe is 28 and 15. Like he's not, you know, like, yeah, he'll go down as a as you know one of the better middleweights of all time, but you know he's not an elite all time great even despite his knockout power and his good cardio and stuff like that, because he you know his ground game never improved enough to be really all that great. 
but it's more, I believe it was more of a mental thing with him than it was, you know, him just, just being that bad on the ground. He's also a terrible interview. So he's also an awful interview. We've tried to, (laughs) we've, we have reached out to him um, and, and haven't heard back and, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe he did, just really doesn't. I know he doesn't like doing interviews. So He's but. the only one-word answer interview I've ever done for, yeah. you know, 15 minutes of interviews. But, <laughs> hey, are, are there two Robbie Lawlers? Because I don't know. Did you notice his back tattoo? Like, does he still have that back I, tattoo? I did notice. Actually, it's kind of funny you say it. I did notice his back, back, back tattoo. This was also the caveman Robbie Lawler where he's got, like, the full beard and kind of, like, the messy hair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so maybe, <laughs> maybe, but I did notice it. I have no idea if he still has it, but, but yeah. I mean, it's a significant it. tattoo to have removed though. Like It would be, it would be for sure. I, I swear. I don't remember that tattoo and watching his UFC run, but I didn't take the time to, you know, Google Robbie yeah. Lawler's back tattoo. Yeah, maybe we're I good. Should. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should. But, but anyway, I thought that um, it was a great win for Jacare. He was so good at this time with his yeah. jiu-jitsu. He was really tough to beat. And, uh, yeah, he, he sort of weathered the storm. And, you know, this yeah, is yeah. one of those things where jiu-jitsu beats, uh, you know, stand-up here. You know, yeah. it's one of those fights. Yeah. And, ja- and Jacare was really training hard on his stand-up. And he tried with, with Robbie. And just that's a bad <laughs> – That's his, speaking of mental miscues, like that's a bad idea. But, yeah, Jacare – not only was he great on the ground, he was very entertaining on the ground. You know, like he, he constantly improving, constantly moving, constantly going for submissions. He tried for a toehold in this one, which was, you know, which was pretty cool. And then when he didn't have the toehold and he realized that he had, uh, I have to be careful how I say this, but essentially he was in a reverse cowboy position, we'll say. And uh, when he was going for the toehold and then he swiped back and hit Lawler in the face with his fist uh, behind him. So, you know, he was, Jacques Ray was a pretty entertaining fighter for a guy that really, you know, cause some of those, some of those guys that were just ground specialists could be really boring, but not Jacques Ray. Uh, but we would see him back. He would be back for another title defense later in 2011 against Josh's favorite all-time fighter, Luke Rockhold, who was cage side for this, by the way, I think I know who Josh, uh, or Josh, I think I know who Locke, Luke Rockhold's celebrity doppelganger would be. Let me let me let me lay this on you, uh, Chris Isaac, the singer, the uh, the Foolish Game singer. Yeah, that's yeah, I know when, when I saw him cage side. That's who he reminded me of. So, next time you know, you're next time you're going down your Luke Rockhold Google rabbit hole, which I'm sure you do at least once a week, <laughs> check out Chris Isaac and tell me if you think they look alike. You know, don't even try to insult Luke Rockhold by putting some eighties <laughs> washed up, you know, slow ballad, dreary, depressing <laughs> singer in the same category with him. But come on. I humbly, humbly apologize. If I Google Luke if I Google Robbie Lawler's back tattoo and Chris Isaac, I'm definitely gonna have to delete my Yeah, history. your wife's your wife's your wife's gonna be like, What is going like she sees your internet history and <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. Uh, anyway, no, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way. And I'll, okay, I'll, I'll respond to you on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Lawler, for his part, he would be back later in the year as well. He would take on Jacques Ray's previous victim, Tim Kennedy, in a fight. All right, we are at main event. It is 170 pounds. Nick Diaz defeated Cyborg Santos via submission, come by way of armbar at 450 of the second round to retain the Strike Force Welterweight Championship. This would be the second defense of his title for the mega popular Diaz, who was 23 and 7 with 12 knockouts and 7 submissions. 
Coming in, he had defeated Marius Zaromskis in January 2010 to win the vacant belt and recently had defended it in a rematch with KJ Nunes from their Elite XC days. Those victories were part of Diaz's eight-fight win streak that had dated back to the mid-2008, uh, or back to, excuse me, back to mid-2008. And Stockton's favorite son was on a roll for sure. Cyborg on his side was 18 and 13 with 11 knockouts and five submissions. A powerful Brazilian striker came into this one having won back-to-back bouts, which included a TKO victory over Zaromskis in a very memorable memorable bout in Los Angeles. Almost always exciting. Cyborg also tended to lose a lot, as his record suggested. In fact, he'd only gone 5-5 five and five in his last 10 bouts prior to the title shot. Uh, but this would obviously be the biggest opportunity of his career. And if he won, Cyborg would join his wife, Chris, as world champions in the same organization, which I believe would have been the first and I think would be still the first chance that we would have to see, uh, you know, see a husband and wife couple both be world champions and in the same promotion. So that that would have been pretty amazing. Like, like Seth Rollins and Becky. And too, Becky. Yeah, almost. that's right. Being both being champions at the same time. So definitely on the same level. Uh, but before we begin this fight, I did want to make, before we get into the fight, I wanted to mention that Morrow talked about a 2006 fight between Cyborg and Melvin Manov uh, that had happened for the Cage Rage promotion in England. And I did actually go and check it out on YouTube. And my God, it was violent. I mean, these two guys were swinging for the fences and they ran out of gas. I mean, at one point, they're both like basically standing, standing there staring at each other with their hands on their hips because they are both so gassed out. Uh, Cyborg, you know, norm- normally fought at, you know, again, 170 pounds. This, that's what this fight was at. He was at 205 pounds for that fight with Manhove. And so he was jacked and probably gassed, uh, to the gills and, and they're both those guys just, they went at it as much as they could in the second round. They just gassed out real bad. And in fact, at the end of the fight, Manhove won by TKO, but he's flat on his back. Cyborg doesn't realize the fight's over and he's, leaning over Manhof and he's trying to hit him and he's hitting him on the chest with basically the, as much force as a six month old, like tapping on his doll. I mean, there was just nothing behind it. And he, it was so weak that the ref didn't realize that he was trying to f- continue to fight because the strikes were so weak. So he let him hit him like three times before he stopped him. And, and it's, but it is definitely a memorable bout. So yeah, just Google, uh, uh, Evangelista Cyborg versus Melvin Manhoff. It's 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 worth checking out for sure. Yeah. But uh, let's get back to the fight. Really intense mid cage stare down for the two competitors. They came forehead to forehead in front of uh, the referee. Cyborg threw a high kick to open things up, which got a stream of trash talk started from Diaz. Huge chance of Diaz Diaz early on. Uh, Cyborg threw some really solid leg kicks early on, and Diaz was forced to respond and start defending those and. Man, they were hurting him. I mean, he was moving differently as the round wore on. He was really having trouble. And Cyborg was just fighting masterfully. He just kept going back to those leg kicks, chopping down the champ who was no longer talking trash. And he even actually kind of dropped him. And Diaz caught himself with one hand and was able to stand back up. But Cyborg was being patient, which he wasn't really known for. Very, very strategic. Things turned around for Diaz with just over a minute and a half left in the first when he clipped the challenger with a left hand, clearly hurt. Cyborg started eating a stream of peppering Diaz punches. Some were stunning and hurting him even further. He was getting hit. Uh, and so, you know, you're getting hit and then combined with all those leg kicks thrown. And and Cyborg, as patient and as strategic as he was being here, 
everything. He reminds me so much of Vanderlei Silva. You know, he's got the head tattoo in the, you know, he's heavily tattooed. He's got the head tattoo in the back of his head. And, you know, just obviously kind of the axe killer look. He's Brazilian, you know, they're about the same skin skin tone. They're both shoot box fighters. So I, there's a lot of similarities. And another similarity between the two is that they don't throw jabs. I mean, like uh-huh. pretty much everything is thrown with full force. And and Santos seemed to seem to be gassing himself out when you combine that with getting hit and just throwing everything he's with everything he's got. Uh, he, he man, he seemed to be in trouble, but he survived. But what a round. I mean, tough to call it. I you know, I wouldn't fight anybody that said that they gave it to, to Diaz 10-9. I gave it to Cyborg 10-9, but it was a really close but extremely memorable round, and I, I really enjoyed it. Phil, I think this was like another forgotten great round in Strike Force history. Yeah. This was so intense, and I don't remember this. I don't I, either. I, I, I did not remember this at all. Yeah, this was a real treat, a real surprise to see. Such incredible action. This has to have been, at least for part of the round, one of Cyborg's most, you know, best technical displays against a high level fighter. And what I really liked about this round was he brought out the best of Nick Diaz yeah. too often. Too often Nick Diaz is like kind of joking in there. He's trash talking. He's using a lot of uh, nonverbal body language to taunt the other fighters. He keeps the fighters away at a distance. He paws at them. There was no room for that because Cyborg was really kicking his backside for part of this fight. And, uh, you know, it, those leg kicks were devastating. You could see Nick uh, anticipating them and almost trying to lift his leg up beforehand so that he wouldn't be able to feel the full impact. Cyborg made Diaz fight, and he paid for it, but <laughs> it's amazing. You make Diaz fight, and we get a great fight instead of one of these fights where Diaz is laying on the mat, you know, trying to look cute just because he can. You know, right. this was a fight. Yeah, it was, it was great, but... I realized in the second round and the commentators ended up pointing this out that I think Diaz was kind of suckering cyborg in a bit, like knowing that he had the propensity to gas. I think he was just trying to weather the early storm because he, in the second round, it started off just the same. The Brazilian was throwing leg kicks. The Stockton native was talking trash, but Diaz just, he seemed more confident. And, and it was like, it was almost like he had a secret and that, you know, he knew cyborg didn't know. Um, fewer standout moments for most of the second round, but with about 30 seconds left, Cyborg got a very nice trip takedown, was probably looking to ride the round out that way. But instead, Diaz caught him in an armbar from the bottom, secured the grip, flipped Cyborg over, positioned him, and got the submission. And it all happened. I mean, it was lightning quick, and it was 10 seconds left in the round. I, I was not expecting it at all. I mean, I knew that I knew that Diaz won by, deci- uh, won by submission, but I didn't realize the exact timing, and so it caught me by surprise. Um, but, but what a great, just what a great fight, really good showing for cyborg. I'm sure it was crushing to lose that way, but, uh, just a great fight. And, and like you said, cyborg, whether Diaz was suckering him or not in or not, I think Diaz, it really brought out the best in him. And, you know, there was a lot of respect between the two fighters after the bell. Yeah, this, you know, you said it all, this was a really great fight. Cyborg brought the best out of Diaz and, how beautiful was that to see Nick Diaz just get that arm bar on so oh, quickly? Yeah. I mean, you, so smooth, thought, so smooth, so smooth. Like you thought the round was going to end and all of a sudden it's over. And we talked about Robbie Lawler's mistakes mentally. What a huge mistake this was for Cyborg 
obviously he's tired. He doesn't want to train uh, punches anymore. But him taking Diaz down, so stupid. Like, it's just dumb. It's better to finish the round, back away, get on your bicycle, run, whatever you need to do. Uh, but he went to the ground and it was over. It's like a, like a fly flying into a spider's web. It's just like, oh, he's dead. It's over. Good point. Good point. Um, but, it, you know, and, that, and you, you deserve the credit for the, you know, the point that Diaz it really bought the, brought the best out in him. And, you know, Santos was just, he was game. And Diaz gave him a lot of respect on the mic afterwards. But not before some very interesting stuff. Diaz went over to some part of the cage. I saw him say F-U-B um, <laughs> to somebody. And they were, he was flipping middle fingers. Did, and did he say B? No, no, no. He said the real ones. <laughs> Uh, sorry to use, sorry to use harsh letters, but, um, he, uh, <laughs> went, he went over and was, you know, flipping the bird to somebody and, uh, you know, there was like soda or beer thrown in the cage and Caesar Gracie's trying to keep, you know, Nick from getting in trouble. And I'm trying I mean, who is he like, I mean, who could that be? And I guess there were rumors afterwards that it was him and mayhem that were beefing. And, uh, and then it was someone, someone suggested that he was like basically flipping off Chris Cyborg and, you know, all this stuff, it, um, it ended up being, uh, I guess a, a group of, of unruly fans that like a bunch of anti Diaz fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did find some articles afterwards where Scott Coker was interviewed and said that he pretty much, he knew who the group was, but he didn't know who the specific people were that were, you know, causing the issues. And so he said, if he did find out that they, you know, we, maybe we won't see them at a strike force event again. I don't know whatever happened with it, but I was definitely glad that it wasn't, you know, Chris Cyborg. I mean, as, uh, you know, f- forgive me for using the phrase, but as ruthless as Nick Diaz can be with, you know, kind of the mind games and stuff, I don't see him, you know, taunting the wife of, you know, the guy that he just beat, especially a guy that he'd shown a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of respect to. But speaking of Chris Cyborg, I mean, she was in tears. And the camera, the Strike Force camera per- or the Showtime camera guy, was trying to, you know, get the camera in there to get a look. And Fabricio Verdun, who's a big dude, 6'4", 250, he was keeping his body and, and you know, trying to get the camera away, which was, you know, a gentlemanly thing to do. They did have her on camera the moment that they showed in replay. They they showed when Cyborg um, tapped, and she was just just devastated emotionally. So that's who we were talking about earlier in the episode, obviously that, mm. um, you know, it, it, you know, it's just, it was very emotional and I felt bad for her. It legitimately felt bad for her. She was clearly, clearly, clearly crushed by her husband's loss. Yeah. I'm sure Nick Diaz was not uh, taunting her, but I mean, yeah. you know, Chris Seidberg's a fighter. I honestly felt worse for Miss Elizabeth when the <laughs> lost the title to Ricky Steamboat at WrestleMania. Three. Um, <laughs> Okay. Or, uh, uh, or 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 uh, the pro- one of the most emotional moments in, uh, in 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 wrestling history would be WrestleMania Seven, which is one of my all time favorite WrestleManias. When uh, Macho was a bad guy and he took on Ultimate Warrior, and Warrior in a really epic match beat him, and then Sherry was you know uh, was berating him, and then Miss Elizabeth. And yeah, I don't. Do you remember? Do you, you know what I'm oh, talking yeah. about? Do you remember? I that? was there. So, was oh, there. you were there. Yeah, because yeah, it was yeah. in L.A. That's was, right. It was, it was in L.A. I, I think I was a teenager, but yeah. I was there. Oh, dude, uh, you were a teenager in 1991. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't really, I didn't realize you were that much older than me. I was nine years old. I was uh, thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. 13. All right. Oh, okay. 13. Just not. Just <laughs> um, 
But no, so on commentary, which that was the, you know, the greatest, I, I mean, all apologies to Jim Ross and uh, Jerry the King Lawler. Yes, I love them, but Gorilla and Bobby are my favorite. They may not be the best, but they were my favorite commentary team. Yeah. And they did this, they, I remember on, uh, you know, on the pay-per-view broadcast, they had, they showed them on camera and Bobby, the brain Heenan's kind of just looking around. He says, Hey, who's that? In what was clearly like a very scripted moment. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no, 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 right over there. Is that Miss, is that Elizabeth? And, you know, girl, oh, it's Miss Elizabeth. And like, she's sitting in the crowd, it clearly planned, you know, camera shots. And then they kept, you know, kind of referencing throughout the match and planting the seeds. And then she, you know, gets up over the guardrail and runs down. And, you know, they have that super, super emotional moment. There's legitimately people crying, you know, never mind the crying guy from CM Punk's return to, you know, wrestling at AEW. There was a guy with glasses on with a macho man hat that was just full on in tears. This like brunette redhead woman with, I mean, just burst out into tears. Like it was so emotional. So yeah, I feel I, I would, that's a legit call. I've, I would feel worse for Elizabeth than I did for Chris. Cyborg. <laughs> Yeah, don't get that's. They're actually a very sad story. They're no neither one of them's with us anymore. Yeah, but, yeah. So a legit, yeah. much much sadder story, of course. But well, anyways, uh, lots of respect again between Diaz and Cyborg after the fight. Diaz didn't call anybody out specifically; just said he'd be up for whoever. Uh, but a quick turnaround for the champ, as it would be him defending the strap against Paul Semtex Daily in another very memorable bout just a few months after this one. I believe it was about three months later. Cyborg would be back to tangle with Jordan Maine later in the year, which obviously would be a pretty big step down from the champion. Um, no you know, no disrespect to Jordan, but where he was at in his career at that point was an up-and-comer. So going from title shot to up-and-comer was obviously, uh, you know, again, pretty big step down. But... Uh, let's wrap this up. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Total disclosed fighter payroll of $533,214.50. The salaries for the main card fighters, Nick Diaz, uh, took home $150,000, while Cyborg got $20,000. So pretty amazing uh, you know, delta between the two of them. Jacques Ray earned $85,000, which included a $15,000 win bonus, while Robbie Lawler got $65,000. Herschel Walker and Scott Carson both got five thousand, which is kind of kind of a crazy, um, kind of a crazy number there. Uh, Hodger Gracie earned seventy five thousand, with Trevor Prangley taking home thirty thousand. This feels like one of the higher payrolls in Strike Force. Well, I mean, I, well, okay, I, I I actually I'm not surprised that you're bringing that up. With you seeing Diaz getting you know one hundred fifty thousand and Jacare getting eighty five thousand, but you got to also remember. There were fights earlier where, uh, I, you know, I think Shamrock Frank got a, like four hundred thousand for one fight, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah. You know, early on, him and Kung were getting a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand. So, I, I actually feel like it was just kind of getting back to where they were at one point. But then, you know, again, Scott Carson and Herschel Walker, main card guys, getting five thousand dollars each. Like yeah. that's that's kind of crazy. So, and and. Uh, Hodger Gracie getting seventy five thousand. It's purely off his name. I mean, yeah. there's no reason he should get that much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he should get that much, but everybody else should be getting a lot more. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's know, sad that today, even today, seventy five k's is actually fairly decent. If you're getting seventy five to win, to show and seventy five to win, that's actually a a fairly decent you know contract in the UFC even today. So, I mean, it's definitely higher now. But we're talking, you know, 10 years after this. It has 
still is not I, the it's become more like boxing than it should be in that the tippy top guys are making tons of money but if you're not a big name you know it's you're you're there's still fighters out there that are you know doing GoFundMe so they can you know train full time so well I, I was listening to Matt Riddle interview with Ariel Hawani who's a podcast and and he said he was getting paid 25 to win or 25 and 25 to win and he was talking about like how that was nothing compared to what he makes in oh, the WWE. Oh God, I'm sure he's just killing it in the WWE. When it, I, man, if I'm a if I'm a fighter and I got a chance at, you know, going into M, MMA or going into WWE, I'm going into WWE. And a good example of this today, as we record this, uh, Gable Stevis, Stevenson, the uh, heavyweight Olympic gold wrestler, his brother Bobby signed with the Performance Center, WWE Performance Center, earlier this week, and then sure. right before we started. Um, started recording this there's a report out that that uh steve uh, gable has signed with wwe and he was being courted by both ufc and wwe i mean to me that's a no-brainer why you know why why wouldn't you go to wwe over ufc the money's better you know you're not in theory you're not getting punched for real yes you're you know quote unquote competing more you're on the road more and that sort of thing but uh, yeah man and you kind of and I think I read a quote from saying like you MMA will always be there. So, you know, why not do the Brock thing? Maybe he does wrestling for a while and then goes into UFC for a while and comes back an even bigger, you know, bigger name. So yeah, he doesn't um, have to, he doesn't have to worry about getting hit super hard for real, unless he wrestles Nia Jax. Yeah. So. God. And then, then he definitely will. Uh, so, you know, not as exciting as Henderson versus Babalu too, but truly a vintage performance from Nick Diaz against a very game cyborg in the main event. I greatly enjoyed that fight. The other fights paled in comparison, uh, though it was a big deal for Jacques Ray to get a win over Robbie Lawler and Hodger Gracie looked good. But, uh, what did you think overall, Josh? Well, it was pretty much a one man, one match show. Uh, main event was outstanding. It was nice to see, uh, Herschel Walker compete and Robbie Lawler, Jacques Ray was was decent um but that main event you know, it was worth it it made it a good show for me um but let's be honest how bad of a show can it be we got three seconds of luke rockhold oh my, god. Shot. oh my god i mean that's oh they're god. just promoting <laughs> you know we ha- i can't imagine what this you know, we haven't even covered an event with luke like competing on it yet like, that's coming pretty soon i can't even imagine what that's going to be like with you god well, because, you know, Luke Rockhold fights about as often as Haley's Comet comes. And by the way, Luke Rockhold is fighting soon, isn't he? Isn't yeah, he I, believe, I believe that he is lo- uh, lined up to fight pretty soon here. So We should do a live stream of that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I may, like, whatever the first Luke Rockhold, you know, show that we come to on here, I may just, uh, I, I may just record it without telling you. <laughs> and, then you'll never, and then you'll never speak to me again. But uh, no, I, I'm I'm sure I'm sure it'll be good once we get there. Um, but yeah, so I'm looking forward to covering our next event. We've got some cool ones lined up. I do have. By the way, did you ever interview Luke? Yeah, I interviewed Luke a few times. Uh, he, uh, I don't know. I should say. <laughs> I probably should say. Um, yeah, I interviewed him, and he's classic Santa Cruz, California <laughs> surfer, okay. no sure. doubt. You know, he's he's just like a uh kind of like kj noons he's just a casual dude you know um one time what, what was it i did something on him where he was not very happy with the interview it was some feud um it might have been the 
Bisping thing. Remember they trained and Bisping was like, I'm the Strike Force champion. I don't think he liked that interview that I did with him, but for the most part it was pretty decent. Well they're they're cool. They're cool now. They they trained yeah. recently. They trained together recently and they're actually they're actually good now. I actually, I actually have his email and his and his uh his his cell phone from back in the day. So I uh once once we kind of get to uh, you know, one of those cards. I'm definitely gonna try to that he's on. I'm definitely gonna try to reach out and see if we can get him on the get him on the show. So, yeah. and uh, you, I'll turn on him on the show. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. And then we'll, we'll hot shot an angle. There and you go. Our there podcast go. will go through the roof. There, so you, there go. you go. All right. Well, the next event we're gonna cover does not feature Luke. Uh, Luke almost said <laughs> Luke Strikeforce uh, or Luke Skywalker or Luke Rockhold. Uh, it does feature. Strike Force Fedor versus Silva marked the beginning of the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix, which Scott Coker gave me a sneak peek at before he announced it. I remember we were at a Noah's Bagels in San Jose, and he said, "Have you signed your NDA?" And uh, I had, I think I said yes without thinking, and I had never actually gotten an NDA, but I didn't tell anybody, uh, so I, I, I kept it to myself. Uh, but as you would expect, there were some big boys in this card: Valentine Overeem taking on Ray Safo, who's now. Uh, one of the leads for the PFL. Chad Griggs de- battled Gian, sorry, Jean Villanti. Shane Del Rosario locked horns with LeVar Johnson. Sergey Heratanov met fellow Eastern European slugger Andre Arlovsky. And then in the main event, as you might have guessed it, Bigfoot Silva got his chance at the heavyweight goat, Fedor Emelianenko. Uh, I won't reveal the winners, but all five main card bouts ended in a stoppage. So I think this is going to be a fun one to discuss. But, uh, and this looking, is when I officially started to hate Bigfoot Silver. There you go. So. Yeah. And that, well, that might be a bit of a spoiler. Uh, but anyways, uh, so if, listeners, again, you can find us on social media, find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Hexagon pod. And you can reach me at Phil at inside the Would love to get your feedback. But We've got some cool things in the pipeline, possibly, you know, who knows, who knows what we'll have, which fighter we'll have on next, but stay tuned to find out with that. We're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We will see you soon. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 